This morning, um, I have the honor and privilege to welcome Dr. Gary Vanderpool. Pastor Andrew is currently preaching at Church Without Walls in Berkeley, and we also get a pastor swap with Dr. Gary Vanderpool. Um, so their church, Church Without Walls, is called CWOW. Um, some facts about them is pretty cool. They're uh, about the same size as our church this past summer. If you notice a spike in our attendance because um, they were checking out other churches as just a way for them just to visit the community and be part of the Bay Area, which is really, really cool. And so if you saw other people in our church, they were probably from church without walls. So see, wow. Um, they have something that is very cool that is pretty similar to us. They actually really enjoy food. So... They have something called a Wow Munch Club, okay? Much like our CLC Snack Time, they actually have an official club, okay? So it's called the Munch Club, and they actually either, either share a meal or snacks, okay? Or as we call it, just lunch here, okay, for us, okay, after service, all right? Um, also, one of the cool things they have, too, at their church, too, is that they have something called a Wow Craigslist, meaning is that on their website, if they have things that they want to share or donate or give or have as an offering to one another, it's an internal, like, kind of Craigslist to each other in church, which is pretty cool. Uh, actually makes me want to definitely do kind of like a CLC Craigslist with us, too. Um, so this morning, I want to welcome up um, Dr. Gary Vanderpool as he's going to speak to you today. Good morning. Well, the first thing I want to say is that I am dressed funny for a reason. I, uh, it's not Halloween, and I've, I, I never dress like this. I don't want you to think that in our church we kind of, you know, dress up or kind of like wear robes or those kind of, those kind of things. It's fine if, if people are into that. But in generally, I would tend to more dress like your guitarist, you know, shorts or whatever. But I have a reason for this, and it'll, it'll become obvious uh, hopefully in a few minutes. Um, question I want to ask this morning is uh, a pretty controversial one, and it's something that I've actually never preached on explicitly um, in a church before, so this is kind of new. Uh, and it's the question is, is political advocacy part of following Jesus? Is political advocacy part of following Jesus? Or as you can see from my question here is, it used to, used to be said like you shouldn't preach politics from the pulpit. You know, separation of church and state, like we got to preach the gospel, that's not political. Um, and so in that, that, that question, I would really ask, is political advocacy a part of following Jesus? And I'll just tell you up front, my answer is going to be an enthusiastic but qualified yes. So yes, political advocacy is part of following Jesus enthusiastically but also qualified. And so, um, you know, we have about half an hour, uh, promise to not go too long. And there is no way to talk about this complex subject in a comprehensive way in half an hour. So uh, make sure your expectations are really low. You know, not going to answer every single question as if I even have the answers. But really, I just want you to invite you into my own journey in this area in political advocacy. Um, because I've spent a lot of my life really focusing on the justice aspect of the gospel. Um, until recently, I was even a professor in a theological seminary of justice and mission. That's what I sort of did um, this is what I did for my job. This is what I did my doctoral work in. Um, but I found that the political side of that was really weak compared to some of the other areas, whether those be economic or vocational or relational, the other different kinds of doing justice. Um, and so this is kind of a new journey for me as well uh, that I want to invite you in on. So my hope 
is that in the next half an hour that we're not going to get some sort of comprehensive, um, you know, agreement on politics and Jesus, what that looks like. But I do hope that our understanding of the gospel will grow. Does that make sense? So, sorry, I'm just going to adjust this because it's distracting. There we go. Um, so that's, that's actually my hope. And Jesus actually talks about this a lot. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, right? It starts out so small you can hardly see it, and then it grows into this big tree. It's really surprising. Like you might even not know that seed is in the soil, but then all of a sudden there's this massive tree. Um, very similar, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven, that the gospel is really, it's, it's kind of like um, this treasure chest in which there's all these, these new things and these old things always coming out, and you never even know what's in there. Um, for those of you who are Harry Potter fans, it's a little bit like Hermione's bearded bag, right? If you see, like, the five people who have read the book are like, oh, yeah, the bearded, ba- the bearded beaded bag. Anyway, it's this small bag, but you can put whatever you want into it. It's, like, huge inside. And I feel like the kingdom of God is a little bit like that. The gospel is a little bit like that, that it's always bigger than you thought. So if you came to church kind of being worried that maybe you just hear yet another sermon and hear the same old thing, that is not this Sunday. I believe that there is some biggering of the gospel that can happen this morning. And so a really good place to start is actually in Luke 4. Um, and this is a scene from, this, in a sense, this is Jesus' mission statement. And I'm glad that we just prayed um, before we kind of heard this text, because that's what Jesus had just done. Jesus had just spent 40 days in the wilderness. Um, he fasted, he prayed, he defeated the devil in prayer. And that was his deep inward spirituality. And then out of that, he comes back to his very hometown, and he goes into, um, he goes into the synagogue. I'm just going to read this for us. Uh, I'm not going to read it from this Bible because it's a different translation. But it says, when he, Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written... And I think Jesus was about to make the gospel bigger for people as well. Because people had heard this text lots of times. But Jesus had a very different spin on it. He said, the spirit of the Lord, this is from Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll And he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he said, the gospel is bigger than you thought. Sorry. He said, today, this scripture, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so, in a sense, this is Jesus' own mission statement. This is Jesus saying what he is about. And so, I want to just take a very quick look at this gospel that Jesus is preaching. When Jesus said, I have come to bring good news, I have come to bring the gospel, that's what gospel means, good news, right? Come to bring good news to the poor, to the oppressed, to the blind, to the brokenhearted, all of these things. What does that actually mean? What does the gospel look like? And I think we have to ask this question before uh, we have to ask this question, what does the gospel mean, before we can look deeply, more deeply at whether political advocacy is part of following Jesus. So if you wouldn't mind just taking 10 or 15 minutes to walk with me through three major areas of the gospel. 
And if you've been around church for a while, these things will be really familiar to you. If you're sort of new to church or just checking things out, hopefully I can give you a very quick overview in a very short amount of time, and it'll be worth your time showing up this morning. So here's our first question, is, um, is sin political? What actually is sin? And when we say sin, that's a very churchy word, but what it really is asking the question is, what's wrong? What is, we all know that this world is broken and disappointing and unjust and painful and there's suffering in this world. What the Bible calls that, the Bible says that's sin. Sin is at the root of all that. And so what is sin exactly? Is it political? Um, and I think for some of us, at least for me, I came to faith uh, in a church when I was 16 years old. And I was given a very personal, individual view of sin. Um, I, was, I, I read verses like this in Galatians 5, which says, it, call, it talks about sin as the acts of the flesh. And so sin is doing things like sexual immorality, impurity, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, drunkenness, orgies. Orgies are definitely sin, don't you think? Can we all agree that orgies are sin? That's what it says, right? So doing things like sexual impurity, that's bad. Like lying and hating people, that's bad. Um, you know, witchcraft, that's definitely bad. Um, drunkenness, you know, doing drugs, all these things, it's sort of a personal morality approach that these things are sin. And so that what we need to do is grow in our personal character in some way. And I think that's true. Like that's a part of what sin is. But it's very interesting that just a few pages later when we look at the end of Ephesians in Ephesians 6, we have this curious passage which broadens our view of sin that says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world is that we have to struggle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Whoa, that sounds like Halloween, right? That sounds creepy. Spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms, authorities, powers, rulers. What in the world is all this talking about? Well, in the thought world of the ancient Near East that Paul is, is really talking about here, and he uses this idea of powers and principalities, he uses this all the time. And he uses it to mean the social and spiritual structures which govern our common life together. So for them, for Paul, he didn't have this difference of like, well, the economy's over here and politics is over here, and then there's demons over here and sort of church and spirituality. For him, with this idea of powers and principalities, it's all mixed up. That the, the social structures that govern us, the economy and the, politi- the politics of the land, that's deeply spiritual. That there's a way in which, st- in which structural evil has helped to determine the social structures that are around us. Now, that's not to say that social structures are completely evil, but just that they're fallen and broken, just like we as individuals are. So that kind of broadens your view of sin, right? Um, And again, these are just two examples in the scripture that I think if we look closely at the scripture, we'll see that sin is, yes, that sin is political. Because I think we all know that politics is broken, that the economy is broken, that the marketplace is broken in certain ways. And the scripture actually says that there are spiritual powers behind those things uh, that are broken. It's both. So maybe sin is bigger than we can sometimes think. Some of us might be sort of Typical Bay Area social structures is what sin is, right? What is sin? Well, sin are the oppressive, unequal, unjust social structures created by powerful, racist, sexist white men. And that's, that's actually true. 
That is where a lot of the structural oppression and evil comes from. It's in these social structures that we've built up over time. But yet, it is also in our own hearts, in our own personal morality. Sin is big. The problem is big. So yeah, but does this answer the problem of how we get, should we be involved in politics? Not yet. So here's our second question then. If sin is big, how about redemption? Is redemption political? Because we all, those of us who follow Jesus, believe that Jesus came to save us from sin, right? And that means if Jesus came to save us from sin, he came to save us from a lot of sin, a lot of these big issues, right? Um, as we saw in the, in, the, in the passage that we read, when Jesus declared his own mission statement, he said that he was here to, to preach good, to, good news to the poor, to give release to the captives, to give sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Like, this is not just a spiritual thing. When he said the oppressed, he meant spiritually oppressed, but he meant politically, economically oppressed too. When he said poor, he didn't just mean poor in spirit. He meant people that are living under the freeways of Oakland. Jesus said he came to bring good news, material good news to those people. That Jesus' redemption is spiritual, it's also economic, it's also emotional, it's also relational. And we see Jesus' holistic ministry as he walks through the Gospels, as we see in the Gospels um, that Jesus actually came to bring a redemption and to bring a salvation that is spiritual but that is bigger than that. Um, in fact, as we look at, in fact, more than 40 times in the Gospels, Jesus actually spoke prophetically and powerfully to the political powers that be at the time. That Jesus spoke out and when things were broken, when things were wrong, he continued in the tradition of Isaiah and the other prophets and Jesus spoke truth to power. He even turned over a few tables when he needed to. Um, but it was not just Jesus. Even Paul really saw that, Jesus, that the redemption of Jesus Christ is bigger than just our own individual um, salvation. It's that too, right? Paul talks about how we've been forgiven of sin. We've been made righteous in God's sight. We've been given a new identity. Our life is now hidden with Christ and God. All those things as individuals are true. Um, and so right after that passage in Galatians that lists like drunkenness and sexual immorality, all those things, Jesus, uh, Paul says, actually salvation means that now we have the fruit of the Holy Spirit and we can experience love and joy and peace and all these things that we are saved in our own character as well. Uh, we're not just forgiven, but we're actually given all these good fruits. But more than just that, Paul then goes on to say, uh, for example, in Colossians 2.15, that Jesus has humiliated, disarmed, and defeated the principalities and powers that we just heard about. That there's something, so that when we say Jesus is Lord, when we say Jesus is God, well, that's actually a political statement. To say Jesus is Lord in, the, in the, the Greek text of the New Testament should actually be read as Jesus as Caesar. Like Lord, for them, that's what it means. Like we might say Jesus for president. And so what Paul is saying is because Jesus is Lord, because Jesus is Caesar, he's actually defeated all of these evil structural powers in the economy, in the in the, um, in the spiritual realm, in the political realm, all of these things that Jesus is wanting to make things right. And Jesus' power will even influence those areas. Now, I tell you, like, as a, as a, when I was first following Jesus and I would read these passages, I was in a church that didn't talk about these passages, so it just seemed weird, right? What are principalities and powers? And then they started popping up all over the scriptures. I just began to see it. And so I think, for me, seeing that Jesus' redemption is bigger than I thought. That yes, it does start with a 
16-year-old kid who was sad and lonely and cursed too much and had, came from a divorced family and um, didn't really feel loved. And so I received all those things. But as I've continued to follow Jesus, I began to see that Jesus' redemption is so much bigger than just me or just you. Jesus actually came to redeem and change even the social structures that are around us. Um, and we see that in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament as well. In fact, in Romans 8, um, redemption is even linked with the redemption of the physical world. That, you know, this creation is groaning, and we've made it groan even more through climate change and all these other things. But that somehow, even the physical creation that God made in Genesis 1 and said was very good, that is broken and, um, and it polluted, that somehow the redemption of Jesus is even going to impact that. It's a mystery, but I think redemption is even bigger than we would expect. Yeah, but does that mean we should be involved in politics? I don't know. God's doing all this great stuff. Praise God. You go, God. Let's pray for it. Let's wait for it. That's true, and we should wait for it. But I think we have to ask this final question is, is discipleship political? If we're called to follow Jesus, um, it's great that Jesus, our Lord, is doing all these amazing, powerful things in the spiritual realm, but aren't we just sort of like, uh, we're like spectators in the arena, like watching Jesus do all this awesome stuff, and you're cheering that he wins, you know? Um, I don't think that's the picture that we see in Scripture of discipleship, though. Because what we see over and over again is that we're called to live like Jesus and to participate in this kingdom that Jesus is bringing to us. To both proclaim and demonstrate what the gospel looks like in this world. So we have passages, like the, the climactic passages in the gospel when Jesus is about to go, like in Matthew 28, he sends everybody out, he sends his disciples out into the world to proclaim the gospel and to teach everyone to obey everything that he has commanded them, right? The fullness of his teaching about what the gospel is, that everybody's supposed to obey that and follow that. It's very similar in the end of John, where in John 21, Jesus tells his disciples, look, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Like in the same way that I have this ministry, this broad-based ministry of redemption, Jesus says, now I give you that same ministry of redemption. I send you out. Paul talks about how, like in, uh, in Philippians 1, how as citizens of heaven, that's like this kind of political term he's using, as a, as a citizen of heaven, but not of this earth, but a citizen of heaven, live lives worthy of the gospel. This full, powerful gospel, which has a lot to say to the oppressed, to the poor, to the blind, as Jesus says in Luke 4. That we're supposed to live lives worthy of that, that actually demonstrate that and show what that looks like. That discipleship is not just cheering for Jesus, although we do cheer for Jesus, and it has to be Jesus that brings the kingdom, but Jesus has given us, as the church, like Paul talks about how we as the church are Jesus' hands and feet, and that Jesus empowers us to do his work in the world. And so, and so we do, so we pray, so we wait, and so we act. So we proclaim the kingdom, and so we model the kingdom, so we live out what it's like. Um, and so what did that look like for the early church? For the early church, what that really looked like was to be the kingdom, to live out the gospel in its own community. So as you look at Acts 2 and 4, which is kind of the climax of Luke 4, right? In Luke 4, Jesus starts off his ministry in Acts 2 and 4, we see the church living it out. And what did they do? They lived a lifestyle together of justice and of righteousness that was very political. And certainly the Roman state saw it as political. 
as they made sure that there was no poor among them, as they, um, they really broke down the dividing wall of ethnic hatred, very deep ethnic hatred at the time. And they said, in the gospel, there's a place for everybody. And we know that normally there's complete segregation in society. But in the church, we're not having any of that stuff. And they actually said, we, we are so close together as family that we're going to share our economic resources in a way that, that shows a completely different kind of society to the broader Roman world. And so that as the Roman world said Jesus is Caesar and they lived in this way, the powers that be freaked out. And that was a big reason why the early Christians were persecuted. Um, the early Christians weren't persecuted because they held weird religious beliefs. Because the Romans were fine with weird religious beliefs. There were all kinds of weird religious beliefs. You should study some of them. Worshiping ISIS, all kinds of crazy stuff. Didn't bother the Romans at all. But as soon as you get political like this, as soon as you model a different kind of society, that's when you get thrown to the lion. But still, this does not answer our question of whether we today, whether Church Without Walls and Christian Layman Church, should be involved in politics. Why is that? Because I think it's obvious that Paul and Jesus did not get involved in the kind of politics that we would think of as politics, right? It's not like Jesus went around canvassing for the Jerusalem Democrats or something like that. You know, Jesus probably didn't have signs for like, you know, Simon Barjona for county assessor or something like that, right? That wasn't Jesus' thing. Um, and Paul's thing either, you know, if we can look through, the, through Paul's letters, Paul doesn't say, you know, we, Paul didn't like write to Caesar about, you know, criminal justice reform in Palestine. He didn't mount any political action campaigns, as we can see that, right? So should we do that kind of thing? Should we be involved in the hot-button political issues that are around? Or should we just take care of ourselves? and should we just model the gospel in our own church? That's a really good question, and we could spend a lot of time thinking about that. Um, but I just have, I think, two, perhaps maybe two thoughts on this matter. Um, that will help us. But the before I get to those two thoughts, the first one is to just observe that one of the big reasons why Jesus wasn't going around, uh, well, for sure why Jesus wasn't going around campaigning for the Jerusalem Democrats or whatever, why Paul wasn't writing to Caesar about criminal justice reform, is because they simply did not have our kind of politics 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire. They didn't have it. Um, so when we say, what did it look like to be political then? It was a completely different question. Um, there was no such thing as political participation for Jews in the early Roman Empire. They couldn't vote. They couldn't write their senator for something. They couldn't do any of that stuff. The only way they could participate politically was to simply pay their taxes, which Jesus said they could do, or armed revolution, which some of Jesus' disciples, before they started following him, said, that's what we need is some good old-fashioned armed revolution. Because there was no way to participate and that's true of a lot of Christian societies where there's a dictator, there's a king, where the politics does not allow for people's participation. And so that's why in the New Testament you just don't see a call to be involved in political action campaigns because there was no such thing as a political action campaign. Does that mean the Bible can't speak to us about politics? Definitely not. Um, you know, the Bible doesn't talk about dating either, right? Why? Because they didn't have dating back then. Nobody had invented it yet. So you're like, what does the Bible say about dating? Nothing. It doesn't say anything about dating. And yet, does that mean that as we date and as we try to 
you know, live out lives of sexual purity that the Bible doesn't say anything to us? Of course not. We have to figure out how to take our practice of sort of dating and all the weird stuff we do to try to find, you know, like, I, don't, I mean, I'm old now. I'm 48. I don't even understand. There's like, apparently there's something called coffee meets bagel, right? There are all these like online things like, should Christians participate in coffee meet bagel? What does the Bible say? It doesn't say anything. But actually it says a lot. The Bible says a lot about how to date, how to love your spouse or your, you know, your boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever. But in a, just not in a direct way. And I think the analogy is really there for politics as well. That if we really understand properly sin, redemption, and discipleship, we will see that the gospel is always already political. It's not limited to politics, but it doesn't exclude politics either. And yet, we don't have a very simple template just because the context is so different, right? So how can we actually concretely apply these things? Right here in the 21st century, we have an election in two weeks. Um, we have all these hot-button political issues. How should we respond? What should we do? Um, how should we respond to our very real opportunities to participate politically if we want to? Um, it's, again, it's not that we have to, but I think we have to recognize that we have a very real opportunity to be involved in political advocacy um, as people who live in the United States. Should we or not? What do we think? Here are two thoughts. Sort of, um, the first thought is that simply to, is that because we have this opportunity to not, politi- to not participate is to participate. That we simply don't have the choice to opt out of politics. Um, in a sense, this is a forced choice for us here in America. Because, in a sense, we, the church will have a political witness, even if that political witness is to do nothing and say nothing about politics. Because what that implicitly does is it supports the status quo. Right? If we're just silent, if we're just living out our life uh, according to the economic and social and political structures that are there, we're implicitly saying that we agree to play by those rules and we support it, if by nothing else, by our silence. Um, Imagine, for example, that you were a Christian who was living in, uh, say, in the state of Georgia in 1850. At that point, race-based slavery is legal. There is no way for you to be neutral on this matter. Even if you're a Christian and you say nothing, even if you say no politics in the pulpit, I don't have a view on race-based slavery, I live in Georgia. Actually, let's change it. Let's not say Georgia, let's say Massachusetts not a slave state. You still don't have a choice. Why is that? Because the entire economy of Massachusetts, where I used to live actually, um, is intimately linked with race-based slavery. And even if you put sugar in your tea, you are supporting slavery. And that is why the early, um, the the, the evangelical Bible-believing Christians who led the fight against race-based slavery, um, one of the first things they did is to boycott sugar. So you could always tell if someone was a serious Bible-believing Christian if you went over their house at tea time and they did not have sugar in their tea as everybody did back in the day. It's not a neutral thing. Either you put sugar in your tea or you don't. People can tell what your, where your stance is, right? Whether you, in, whether you invest in the shipping companies that ship the cotton to Great Britain and, you know, in the same way, we ourselves are, we're already um, involved. We're already complicit in all the structures that are around us. And if we just say nothing and go along with those structures, we're voting with our dollars, we're voting with our silence. 
we're just kind of going along. So I guess the first thing I would say is quite simply that we don't have a choice to be political, that people will see our witness, whether it's silence or whether it's using our voice. So here is why I am wearing this crazy getup. Because, uh, and I think I might have shared this story at the retreat, but it's, it's, it's my best political story, so I'm going to tell it again. Um, this was a time, uh, it was about a year and a half ago, right when there had been a lot of really egregious police shootings of unarmed African-American men. And there had been, a, you know, a bunch of scandals in the Oakland Police Department. And so there were some African-American pastors who were leading a big rally on, uh, you know, against mass incarceration, against criminal justice abuses, those kinds of things. And so my church um, decided that this was a gospel issue, that this was something that we felt like we should have a public witness on. So about 30 of us actually went to one of these big protests in downtown Oakland. And so, you know, we had our, we had our little Church Without Walls t-shirts on, and we were trying to find some of the other Christians that were doing this, and so we went around and we tried to find them, and then there were like, uh, you know, there were people who were chanting like, F the police, and they were like burning things, and we're like, oh, those are the anarchists, not the Christians, we'll go over here. And so we were trying to find our way, and you know, we're kind of new to the protest thing, whatever. Um, and so we finally found the Christians, and it was really cool. We're all together. We're doing our chants and whatever. And I chose to wear this, even though I would never wear something like this. I feel, even now, I feel self-conscious. But it felt like a way to just give public witness in that space. So I'm walking around the street in my weird little costume. And this, this, this young African-American man, maybe in his early 20s, comes up to me, and he taps me on the shoulder. And he says, hey, are you really a priest? Like, I think he thought in mind I was being sarcastic or something. Maybe an anarchist, like, pretending or something. And I'm like, and of course, I didn't correct him. I say, well, I'm a pastor, not a priest. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm a priest, sure. And he's like, whoa, man, I didn't know you guys cared. He gave me a big hug. That was a powerful moment for me. Because in that moment, I saw how I was actually bearing public witness to the gospel. When Jesus said he came to set the captives free, that this, maybe that the being at this protest was a little aspect of what that might look like. And I certainly know that it communicated to this particular guy. And I also know that the reason he actually hugged me is because he was surprised to see a priest out there. Because his experience of the church was that the church didn't care about the things that were deeply damaging him and his own people. So I would say that another principle that we can think about. The first principle is simply that we don't have a choice whether to be political. We only have a choice on how we are political, when we will speak up, when we will be silent, that those things um, are necessary to, to appropriately represent the gospel. And it's tricky. These are tricky issues. So I think one principle that we need to focus on is perhaps to prioritize political issues that are closely linked to gospel values. Those things that Jesus said in Luke 4, that we should prioritize the poor. See it up there. We should prioritize the poor, the oppressed, the captive, and the disabled. Right? That those are, that as, as we see God's heart for justice, that God especially cares about these groups of people. And that in a way, our political involvements should also care about those people. That we shouldn't be protecting our own political self-interest necessarily, 
unless we fit into those categories, and you know, some of us do in various ways, but that our politics has a special concern for the poor, the oppressed, the vulnerable, the captive, the disabled. Um, to be honest, the political issue that bothers me most is the bad roads in Oakland and Berkeley. Because I try to bike a lot for environmental reasons, and so I just find it so annoying that I have to like bike around and chunk, 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 and I'm paying all this money in housing taxes, and I get these terrible roads. You know, you could actually hurt yourself going down, you know, like, and if you're, if you're biking around at night, you could hit a pothole, it'd be really bad. So I'm constantly like, I'm gonna be a political advocate for bad roads. This is ridiculous, this is corrupt. And I believe that's true, and you can see how mad I am right now. But you know what, I haven't really gotten involved. Because even though I do think good roads would be really good for the common good, and they really need to get that right, I don't know that it's a gospel value priority. You know what I mean? The poor, the oppressed, the captive, the disabled, the bikers who want a smoother ride. You know, like, I don't know that it's that important. So for me and for my church, we've actually chosen to focus our political advocacy not on bad roads, but on immigration reform and refugee rights. Why is that? Well, because the gospel says to welcome the stranger, or the, the, the Torah says to welcome the stranger. The Torah says, you were strangers and aliens in Egypt, so you welcome the stranger among you. So to us, that feels like a gospel. You know, Jesus was always welcoming people who had been left out of society. So whatever our particular political opinions is, we feel like we should care especially and prioritize people who are newcomers, who are refugees, who are immigrants, especially those who are poor. So that's one thing our church prioritizes. A second thing our church prioritizes really is mass incarceration. As people have observed that, you know, race plays a big factor in our criminal justice system. And so when Jesus said he came to set the captives free, we feel like that's a way of concretely living that out as best we can. So we prioritize that both relationally through our partnership with Men of Valor uh, in East Oakland, which is a ministry that, um, that encourages men who have been incarcerated to make it back successfully into society, and through our political advocacy as we kind of look carefully at the issues as we advocate in Sacramento. And then finally with environmental justice. That's a big theme for us as well, and I'll talk about why that is in just a second. But again, I think the first thing, as we're called to be involved in politics, it doesn't mean we need to be involved, it'd be experts in every single thing. We need to do every single thing politically. But I think what it does say is that when there are clear injustices in our society and around us that we could speak to as a church, we need to speak to that as a church. Why? Because we just want to model the gospel. Because the gospel says that God has a special preference and concern for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. So when those issues are around us, how can Christians be silent and absent? We must be present and we must speak out. The second thing or the last thing I would say, um, is to simply be humble. Um, to recognize that just because we're Christians doesn't mean that we can figure out really complex um, political issues. And it doesn't mean that God, the Holy Spirit, magically tells us exactly how to vote on Measure O or P uh, on, in early November. That we don't necessarily know. What we do know is that God has a special concern for the poor and the vulnerable. What we don't know is whether um, State Proposition 10, opening up rent control, will actually be helpful to those people. So I think we need to be humble. That's an empirical issue, right? Um, that's why uh, my church, so I guess what I would say is sometimes the church is called to be a forum and sometimes it's called to be a platform. 
right? I really hope that if I had been one of those Christians in 1850 in Massachusetts, that I would have been an ardent abolitionist and that I would have preached that from the pulpit and that I would have said that um, this is a gospel issue and we have to stand against slavery. God help me, I hope I would have done that. I think there are places politically where the church needs to be a platform. You know, you think about uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer speaking out against Hitler. Like that was a political issue. But to be silent like so much of the church was deeply damaged the witness of the, of the German church for many, many years. So I think there are times when the gospel needs to be a platform and we have to just say, yes, the gospel means no to Hitler. The gospel means no to race-based slavery. But I think there are a lot of other times where we're just not sure and we say, look, what I know is that God cares about the poor and that God cares about people who are being displaced and who are homeless here in the East Bay. But what I don't know is whether measure one um, would be a good way to actually bring greater justice. I don't know. So in cases like that, it's a really good thing for the church to be a forum, to actually hear from both sides and to really think it out critically and to pray about it. And so that's why my church uh, in just... Uh, just an hour, my church is actually going to have an election forum where various ones of us, you know, we look at all these complicated propositions, we try to do the research, and we gather everybody and everybody speaks out about the, the issue that they have learned about, and then we can all vote in a more informed way. And so right after this, if you're not doing anything good, you're all invited to Munch Club at Church Without Walls. Uh, I'm going to dash out there, and you're happy to hear my thoughts on Measure 3 and on the... Uh, the lieutenant, you know, the lieutenant governor. Anyway, something else that I researched but can't remember right now, but it's in my phone. So anyway, so the church, whether it's a platform or a forum, can bring a voice to the conversation. I think for me, um, one of the places I feel called, and this, I'm just sharing my own journey with you to close. Um, one of the places I do think uh, that I've been called to uh, to, to actually raise up this issue as a platform is in the issue of climate change. Um, and that's because I believe it's prioritizing an issue closely linked to gospel values. In fact, it's the very first call that God ever gave to us in Genesis 1, where God made the world, said, man, that's good, I really like that. Now take care of it. That's the first great commission to every single human being. Jesus said, I love this world I commission all of you to take good care of it. And we clearly have not done that. In fact, the latest um, UN report that just came out two weeks ago of scientists, consensus scientific report from around the world is that we have only 12 years left before we have grave, irreversible damage to the God's world that will change the way we won't even recognize this planet, according to what these scientists say. So unless I have some kind of inside knowledge that trumps all these scientists' knowledge, I think for me, that means I have 12 years to speak out against this politically, to live differently in my own private life. To be honest, let me tell you what really motivates me. It's kind of back to this costume again. I'm imagining my grandkids, because I'm 48 now, so it is plausible, my, you know, my kids, my, old, my son is a sophomore in high school, my daughter is in eighth grade. So it is plausible and actually hopeful that in 12 years I will have grandkids. I know, it's, I look so young, isn't that amazing? But in 12 years, I will have grandkids. 
And if I and you and all the rest of us keep going along as we are, the world that we're maybe going to give to my grandkids, you know, when they're my age, it might be really bad. And in fact, it'll influence the poor in this world, both in the U.S. and abroad, even more. My grandkids might be okay because they're probably going to be wealthy and they're going to go to good colleges. Maybe they'll be able to move to Denver or, or the Yukon Peninsula or something, which will be really warm then. Who even knows, right? But there's a lot of people uh, and a lot of creatures that God has made that's going to be unrecognizable unless we do something. And this is an issue that we can't, I mean, a good place to start is in our own personal life. Like that's why our church every Sunday, every, every month, on Sunday we bring all of our plastic film, we gather it during the month, and we put it on our, in our worship station as an offering unto the Lord. So all, it's, it's amazing how much, just the, the soft plastics you use that you, that you have to go to a special recycling place in El Cerrito. We bring it to our worship station, we set it up here, and it's this mountain of plastic, Oop. and we, we offer it to God, and we say we're at least going to recycle this. That's a good first step. But unless we fundamentally are part of advocating structurally and politically for changing the way we burn fossil fuels, the world our grandkids, your great-grandkids, who even knows, the world that they will live in, it's probably going to be really bad. So for me, I'm thinking hard about how, so that's why, you know, right now I'm leading an environmental justice learning community where we, I don't know how to advocate politically for this, but we're going to figure it out and we're going to work on it. And we're going to not do, we're going to pray about it. We're going to think about it. We're going to act in it. That's just me. Um, and that's kind of the principle of learning to figure out how that should be a platform, learning to prioritize issues closely linked to gospel values. My encouragement to you at Christian Layman would be to figure out where is God calling you? Since you don't have the option of being apolitical, how is God calling you to be political? How is God calling you to show the world as they ask you? Because really, all of you are dressed like this. The world is watching Christian laymen to see whether what the gospel looks like, whether the gospel has anything to say about the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, whether right now in this generation or in our grandkids' generation. The world is watching. So my question is, what are you going to say? How are you going to act? And I guess my fondest hope is to ask the question, how are we going to act? Because you know what? We don't have to agree on everything on politics. In fact, we could probably point out, like we probably disagree on 50% of politics, and we could argue about it right now. But you know what else? We have some very deep agreements. We have some agreements on some things that really do, we all do believe that this is a gospel issue. And I think if Christians got together and worked on those things that we do agree upon, um, I don't know if it would change the world, but I do know that it would witness to the world what the gospel looks like. And I do know that people would come up to us and say, I didn't know that you guys cared, but now I do. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for your good news. I thank you that you saved me and that you keep showing me how big your gospel is. And God, I just pray that for my brothers and sisters here at Christian Layman. I pray that you would keep showing them how big your good news is. Um, and Lord, I pray that you would show them how to do that together. And Lord, I pray that you would lift up their agreements, Lord, and that they would not be defined by their disagreements, God, but that you would show them 
just some ways that they can have a unified witness and that they can bring glory and honor to your name here in the East Bay and in this world that you love so much. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.